Thanks for popping on your headphones and joining us for an episode of Ballsy History, a podcast about big personalities and little-known stories. Settle in for a tour of the outrageous acts, incredible stories, and outsized characters that shape history. We're your hosts, Elizabeth, Elise, Elliot, and Maureen. We're glad you're tuning in. wait a second, what's going on? It's Operation Switcheroo in honor of April Fool's Day. Starting back in 1997, the great comic switcheroo began where comic artists pull pranks on their readers by drawing each other's comics. Starting last year, Your Brain on Facts podcast organized a great podcast operation switcheroo that had over 50 podcasts participating. This year, we are pleased to share with you Doomsday, History's Most Dangerous Podcast in our feed. I hope that you will sit back and enjoy these great guys from across the Canadian border as they look at one of the worst jobs in history. Enjoy and look up your Brain on Facts podcast and Doomsday, History's Most Dangerous Podcast wherever you normally enjoy your favorite podcasts. Here we go. If you Google worst jobs, you're going to see things like crime scene cleanup and sewer diver. But compared to medieval bell ringer, at least sewer divers can be hosed down. Bell ringers had to be hosed off, like every surface. Hello and welcome to Doomsday, history's most dangerous podcast, brought to you by Funeral Kazoo on the Anchor FM network. Together we will rediscover some of the most traumatic, bizarre, and awe-inspiring but largely unheard of or forgotten disasters from throughout human history and around the world. For example, on today's episode you will hear about people superheating to five times the temperature of the surface of the sun. You'll also learn what a terrible job TV and movies have done teaching you about explosions. You'll also learn how to stop, drop, and roll in Latin. This is not the podcast you play around your kids, or while eating, or even in mixed company. But as long as you find yourself a little more historically engaged and learn something that could potentially save your life, our work is done. So with all that said, shoot the kids out of the room, put on your headphones and safety glasses, and let's begin. Benjamin Franklin was a lot of things in his day. Renaissance man, author, political theorist, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, civil advocate, squirrel enthusiast, diplomat, international negotiator, founding father of the United States, signer of the Constitution, and inventor. He's also the face on the American $100 bill. It's hard to say what he's best remembered for, but it might be for a little experiment he did with a chitin string back in June of 1746. He attached a metal key to a kite string and sent it forth into a gray and threatening sky. Lightning struck the key, electricity raced down the dampened string, and we remember this moment as one of mankind's most important scientific discoveries, instead of one of America's most well-attended closed-casket celebrity funerals. Small point about the discovery of electricity. Who was the original inventor of the telephone? Let's say it at the same time. Three, two... One, Antonio Meucci. Wait, did you say Alexander Graham Bell? You mean the guy whose name we only know because he made it to the patent office first? Antonio Meucci also invented the telephone 
earlier even, but because history is written by the successful, Miucci was relegated into a life of court battles that only ended with death. He died poor, bitter, and forgotten by history. Why are we kicking this poor, bitter, dead man? The point is, many different people discovered electricity throughout history. But according to the American educational system, Benjamin Franklin invented it. And people like William Gilbert and Sir Thomas Brown are history's fake news. Only three years after shocking himself with the kite, he turned his intellect to the possibility of protecting buildings and the people inside them from lightning. Here's a quote from the man himself. May not the knowledge of this power of points be of use to mankind in preserving houses, churches, ships, from the stroke of lightning by directing us to fix on the highest parts of those edifices upright rods of iron made sharp as a needle. Would not these pointed rods probably draw the electrical fire silently out of a cloud before it came nigh enough to strike and thereby secure us from that most sudden and terrible mischief? I love that in the 1700s they would call having your house destroyed by lightning mischief. Benjamin Franklin loved electricity so much he tried to throw an electric turkey barbecue and shocked himself quite badly. True story. But he wasn't a brilliant idiot. Among his other notable inventions and discoveries were bifocals, swim fins, some kind of stove, the flexible catheter, the glass harmonica, and now the lightning rod. Franklin's rod was widely embraced throughout the American colonies. Riding high with a strong wind of humanitarian accomplishment in his sails, he took his life-saving invention on a European tour. Starting in France, he plied his skill as a diplomat and statesman to illustrate that lightning had been demystified by science. Lightning was electricity, not magic. And more so, with his simple invention, he could help them save lives and property. He said, I have no private interest in the reception of my inventions by the world having never made, nor proposed to make, the least profit by any of them. But the French government, like many European governments at the time, was tightly connected to the church. And the church's position on all of this was a straight up, no thanks. The very idea of installing a metal rod on a holy structure to reroute lightning, safety into the ground, quote, attempted to control the artillery of heaven and challenged divine will. Snake handlers use this same philosophy to juggle venomous rattlers because they believe God has promised to protect them. Franklin responded to the pushback in his matter-of-fact way that there was no religious objection to having roofs on buildings to protect people from rain. So what was so wrong with protecting buildings and people against lightning? It's a pretty solid argument, but the church countered that thunder and lightning were signs of God's displeasure and that if God destroyed a building with a lightning bolt, he did so for a reason. Franklin wasn't often left without words, but he was up against a conveyor belt of religious pundits with centuries of ingrained belief under their robes. Lightning has been associated with the divine will of an unseen higher power since we were still learning to walk upright. There isn't a faith in the world that doesn't have some kind of lightning god. The Norse had Thor, Hindus have Indra, Slavic religions have Perun. The list goes on and on and on. In Greek mythology, Zeus used to use lightning the way we use exclamation points. In most depictions, you'll find him with a sizzly bolt at hand, shooting side-eye at someone or some building he had some real or imaginary beef with. Long story short, Franklin pushed his luck, the church wasn't having it, and it nudged the French government into clapping back. They didn't just denounce his efforts to save lives, they doubled down and outlawed lightning rods altogether. Suspension of disbelief is one thing, but Franklin was gobsmacked. He invented the facepalm, then he went home. Take a look at the $100 bill. Look at that expression. That face has good luck with all of that written all over it. 
Side note, to add insult to insult, when he got home, the Reverend Thomas Prince, who was basically the evangelical Jerry Falwell of his day, was preaching that Franklin was a tool of the devil, and his quote-unquote satanic iron rods once driven into the ground created earthquakes. It wasn't a great time for science. If I could have advised him on the matter as long as everyone was taking stupid pills, I would have had him double down and fire back with, "Ugh, you believe in earthquakes? and kneecap the reverend's credibility. It's long been said that a tall church lifts the soul to heaven. Others argue that lightning is retribution against man's vanity for building higher and higher. The architect of Glastonbury Abbey in England once wrote, I want to build a church so beautiful that it will inspire even the hardest heart to pray. There's some truth to the idea that churches are very much in the business of putting butts in seats and lofty vaulted ceilings with pointed arches seem to inspire the human heart in a way churches with basement windows and tiled drop ceilings never could. So considering the church steeple was actually the tallest point in any town, and giving lightning's utter thirstiness for the shortest route between the earth and sky, and top that off with a fine coating of metal, or at a minimum steepled with a giant metal crucifix, if you'd been trying to design an object to attract lightning, all I'm saying is you could do worse than a church. You know how you take two magnets and you put them just close enough so that they slap together? That is called the law of attraction, and clouds kind of work the same way. Inside a cloud, positive protons gather near the top, negative ones gather at the bottom. And in the same way magnets jump together, those negative electrons reach out to positive protons stored up in the mortal world below. When a cloud gets just close enough to those protons, say from a tree or a building or a golfer or a church bell, anything tall enough to knock that potential electricity out of its static state, and boom, a connection is made. At home, when you shuffle across a carpet, the gap between your finger and the doorknob will fill with a tiny blue spark and make a little sound as potential energy turns into kinetic energy. In nature, the gap between the cloud and the earth is filled with a bolt of plasma containing up to a billion volts of electricity, traveling at nearly 300,000 kilometers or 200,000 miles per hour, and loud enough to forcibly empty your bowels on demand. But enough about lightning, we're going on a trip. Pack your Sunday best and passport, we're heading to Italy. Today's story takes us to the beautiful city of Brescia, about halfway between Milan and Verona in the northern Italian region of Lombardy, seated right at the foot of the Italian Alps. The surrounding region is truly magnificent and boasts some of the most fantastic scenery in all of Italy, which is saying a lot considering how beautiful Italy is. Brescia is chocked full of the kind of stuff that makes Italy the fifth most visited country in the world. To describe it as beautiful and historic is just lazy. To walk the streets, alleys, and public squares of Brescia is to walk through a city that has played an important role in historical events since the Roman Empire. It houses the best-preserved Roman public buildings and monuments in all of northern Italy. Medieval, Baroque, and Renaissance buildings overlook sprawling piazzas lined with cafes and museums decorated with masterworks by Italian artists. Oh and it's situated against a shimmering mountain lake as clear as a mirror and surrounded by lush green mountains dotted with small villages and vineyards. It even has an honest-to-god medieval castle with a moat and everything. UNESCO loves this place. Today we're going to focus on one building in particular, the Bastion of San Nazaro. The Bastion of San Nazaro was, back in its day, a medieval-style stone-structured church with one main square and steepled bell tower adorned with a giant metal crucifix. Inside was home to beautiful, historic mosaic tile floors, detailed stucco artwork, sculptures, and colorful medieval frescoes. 
all the details you might expect to find in a historic church. Rosaries, holy water, communion wafers, and gunpowder. The sky over Brescia grew dark as a storm appeared. The date was August the 18th, 1769. The priests played a serious round of parchment rock shears, leading to two of the men issuing heartfelt goodbyes. In Christian tradition, bells are important for all kinds of reasons. They call worshippers to service. They announce times of daily prayer, approaching armies, weddings, funerals, whatever. They're the alarm app of the medieval world. If you were the designated bell ringer and a thunderstorm approached, it was your job to ring the bells and ward away the lightning. Your church bell is even inscribed with the Latin phrase, Fulgera Frango, which means, I break up the lightning flashes. It was said that over the previous 30 years, lightning had struck 386 churches in France alone, killing at least 103 bell ringers, and that was just in France. I heard a similar statistic for Germany, but I couldn't confirm it through a secondary source. Now technically, you could lie your way out of this job for the low, low price of only three Hail Marys. I imagine the priest reminiscing about the fun times they shared, choosing their words carefully so as not to portray their angst. After kind farewells, they part with a handshake that lingers just a little too long as they begin climbing the bell tower, probably thinking of the words of Luke, chapter 10, verse 19, where Christ declared, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. They continued their climb, in the rain, so they could ring a giant hunk of polished metal attached to a soaking wet rope. You already think you know where this is going. You do not. Believe me, you don't. Let's take a step backwards. When cannons first appear in Europe back in the 1300s, they were like catnip to military leaders looking to put bigger and bigger holes in their enemies. This led to bigger and bigger cannons, which required more and more gunpowder. By the 1700s, they were pumping out cannons 10 feet long, weighing 20,000 pounds, or 9,100 kilos, for those times when you absolutely positively have to turn squadrons of people you disagree with into paste. The church was totally down with the idea of turning non-believers over to the great hereafter. Weirder still, European governments completely bought into the idea that, despite all available evidence to the contrary, including having to regularly spatula heavily cooked priests out of bell towers, that churches were so well sanctified that no one would dare defile or attack one. Except for God, who seemed to attack them frequently. Do you know what an act of God is? It isn't a religious term. It's a legal one. An act of God is a natural hazard outside of human control, extremely unlikely and not preventable, like a hurricane or a tsunami. Pretty sure the term was invented by insurance companies as a way of invalidating your claims. Anyway, churches were the perfect and obvious place to store valuable or sensitive materials. And I don't mean state secrets or dirty pictures. The Bastion of San Nazaro was selected by the Republic of Venice as the safest place to store gunpowder. 207,000 pounds, or 90,000 kilos, of gunpowder. That's 46 Dodge Caravans worth of gunpowder, just to be clear. Contemporary accounts translated from ye olde Italian all agree that the storm that day was crazy. Uninterrupted lightning, thunder, and torrential rain. It had been arid and dry for months, and the people finally had something to rejoice about. Most of them, at least. As the priests grabbed the rope and began to pull, the massive cup-shaped bell swung against the hammer. The hollow tanks, which you could normally hear for a mile or more, were drowned out by peals of rain and thunder. And yes, now you could guess what happened next. God heard the exultant bing-a-ding of the church bells and directed his lightning elsewhere, exactly as planned. 
except for the part where he didn't, and none of that happened. Two things. First, to be clear, we're only sarcastically making fun of a demonstrably outmoded way of thinking here. Belief that God specifically uses lightning as a way of pepper-spraying his earthly displeasures has no more basis in reality than the people of Salem had for blaming witchcraft for their woes. Case in point, the Solid Rock Church is a 4,000-seat megachurch near Monroe, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati. Its claim to fame is the King of Kings statue. It's an absolutely massive six-story wood, foam, and metal statue of Christ emerging chest-high from a man-made lake in the front yard. Jesus was hard to miss from the interstate and was lovingly nicknamed Touchdown Jesus because his arms were raised to heaven like a ref calling a field goal. One night in 2010, God blasted it. Touchdown Jesus became a massive inferno and burned uncontrollably until there was nothing left but slag. I have trouble throwing out my children's old finger paintings. And if you believe God saw this monument to his only begotten son and destroyed it on purpose, you would have to conclude that God has issues. Obviously, children can be difficult, but what the actual hell? You're the creator of the universe. Pull yourself together. The world's most famous tribute to his son stands atop Brazil's Sugarloaf Mountain, overlooking beautiful Rio de Janeiro, the 130-foot statue Christ the Redeemer. It is beloved by people around the world. Two million people brave a cable car ride to visit it every year. One time in 2008, God shot it in the face and blew a finger off. Lightning can blow up stone, you ask? You betcha. Every time you hear a massive crack of thunder, think of it as the air exploding, which is, believe it or not, for that brief instant, five times hotter than the surface of the sun. It explodes with a force of about 10 pounds of TNT. And second, Brescia has been struck by calamity before. In 1478, it was decimated by the plague. 25,000 people died. And again in 1524, and 1550, and 1577, and 1630. They were used to tragedy, as long as it was slowly drawn out by the ravages of a plague. Nothing could have prepared them for what happened on this day. Lightning strikes around the world about 100 times every second, and every year it hits about 24,000 people. But 90% of people struck by lightning survive. Yes, often with massive scarring and neurological damage, but alive. So what happened to the priests of San Nazaro? We can only speculate, so let's do that. To do that, we're gonna slow things way down and spend some time inside the three milliseconds it took for the lightning to pass through their bodies. Their hair and clothing likely singed or caught fire. It's more likely it was shredded by the explosive force of the blast wave. They were likely wearing a rosary or crucifix at the time. Any metal objects would melt into their skin, creating a uniquely emo look. Ruptured eardrums are expected, along with a whole world of pain. One survivor of a lightning strike described it as feeling like the pain of a thousand wasps stinging from within. Blood vessels bursting in the skin can sometimes create a pattern of scar tissue that looks like the limbs of a tree. It traces the path the electricity took through the body. If the lightning exited through your feet, the force could literally blow off your shoes. But wait, there's more. Immediately after being struck, the shock will disrupt the heart's electrical rhythm, like a needle knocked off a record, resulting in cardiac arrest. The shock could also cause seizures or respiratory arrest. If the electric current enters the skull, it could literally cook your brains, resulting in brain damage, paralysis, or coma. But let's say they've survived all of that. They would probably be faced with a lifetime of neurological afflictions. Survivors have experienced personality changes, mood swings, memory loss, chronic pain, and Parkinson's-like muscle twitches for the rest of their days. Now, 
If they did survive all this, it's exceedingly rare, but lightning strikes can actually lead to the unleashing of strange super talents. The priests could have walked out of that tower with laser eyes. That's a lie. Three more Hail Marys. In a blog post for Psychology Today, University of Miami neuroscientist Barrett Brogard wrote about an orthopedic surgeon who was struck by lightning and was left with the urge to learn to play the piano. He began composing music he had mysteriously started hearing in his head, and after a few months he quit surgery and became a classical musician. The best theory is that cell death caused by being struck by lightning could flood the brain with neurotransmitters that cause a rewiring of neurons, which means they're using areas of the brain that were previously inaccessible. Roy Sullivan was a U.S. park ranger in Shenandoah National Park who survived being hit by lightning seven different times, and he had the singed ranger hats to prove it. After a herald deal was struck, he could no longer feel the sensation of cold. Edwin Robinson claims a lightning bolt returned his eyesight, which he'd lost in a car accident ten years earlier. Lightning can be weird and random. But don't worry, your chances of getting hit by lightning are one in a million, depending on the sources cited. That's the same as your chance of being killed by flesh-eating bacteria. Literally. Sorry for putting that in your head. About 50 people are killed by lightning a year, so statistically that means you are 50% more likely to be run over by your own lawnmower. And that's not hyperbole. So let's say you're outside and a thunderstorm sneaks up on you. What can you do to better your chances of telling the story in your own words out of your still-living face? Seek shelter, in the lowest area you can find. If you can find dense growth or small trees, mix it between them, but not too close. Avoid overly tall or isolated objects like trees or flagpoles. Lightning, as we've seen, does like to strike the tallest object in an area. Oh, and stay away from water. If you're outside and you see metal objects lightly glowing, or your hair starts to stand up, or your skin tingles or crackles, here's the move. Get as low as you can, but don't lie down. You gotta keep your butt off the ground. Crouch down like a baseball catcher. You don't even want your heels on the ground. You sit on the balls of your feet and put your heels together. This way, if lightning strikes the ground first, it improves your chances that it'll travel up one foot and out the other instead of lighting up your central nervous system. And try not to soil yourself. You're trying to make yourself less conductive. Another pro tip, the sound from a lightning strike can be around 120 to 150 decibels. That's about 10 times louder than a pneumatic jackhammer. So place your hands over your ears to protect yourself, unless you want the last thing you ever hear to be the sound of whimpering and quietly soiling yourself against advice. Cars are good places to be. Bathtubs and showers, not so much. You want to stay away from windows, sinks, toilets, tubs, showers, electrical boxes, outlets, appliances. Basically anything that connects to the outside world by metal wire or water is a potential path for the extremely unlikely possibility that lightning can jump through them and into you. Super rare, but it does happen. So what does happen if someone catches a bolt? Crispy aesthetics and a smoky new look, lack of a pulse, no visible breathing. First thing to know, there's no danger in helping someone who's been struck by lightning. The electricity has already passed. What they're going to need is the TLC of CPR, immediately. Here's advice from the American Heart Association. If you're not trained in CPR, then provide hands-only. That means uninterrupted chest compressions of 100 to 120 beats per minute until the paramedics arrive. You can keep the pace of staying alive by the Bee Gees in your head. You can use mbop, but I'm always afraid that if you're actually kind of humming along to it, people are going to think that you're not taking CPR seriously enough. If you're well-trained and confident in your ability, I probably don't have to tell you to check to see if there's a pulse and breathing. If there's no breathing or a pulse within 10 seconds, begin chest compressions. You start CPR with 30 chest compressions before giving two rescue breaths. The priests of San Nazaro, on the other hand, were well beyond the possibility of medical intervention. 
When the lightning connected with the church that day, the priests were instantly killed in the shortest lived tragedy in the history of recorded history. That's not an actual title of record, but hear me out. See, lightning travels at 320 million feet per second, so 1 90 millionth of a second after the priest's entire central nervous system shut off, the current continued through the steeple, down the walls, into the basement, where it found, ignited, and detonated the gunpowder. The first tragedy of their electrocution was utterly erased by the devastating explosion of the gunpowder, which likely transformed them into something between a superheated mist and a flaming aerosol and blown away. Chemical explosions burn rapidly, producing a massive amount of hot gas that expands just as fast, creating a wave of pressure strong enough to blow anything out of its path. Ever see old-timey footage of nuclear tests on model towns? Before the blast carries everything away, you see an invisible wall roll up, kick in the doors and knock over all the trees. That's the shockwave. It's a perfectly spherical, invisible wall of air and dust that pushes everything out of its way. You can't see it because it's made of air. You can only see evidence of it as it hurtles towards you with incredible speed. When you feel a light breeze on your skin, it's because air has weight and substance. It can fly a kite, or muss your hair, or remove all your patio furniture, or turn your home into kindling. Air is a real thing, and you can feel it. The fastest wind speed ever recorded on Earth was 372 kilometers or 231 miles per hour at the Mount Washington Observatory in New Hampshire, which is drivable and totally worth visiting, but will ravage your brakes on the way back down. The fastest wind speed ever recorded in a tornado was 484 or 301 miles per hour near Moore, Oklahoma in 1999. The fastest speed in the solar system was recorded at 618 kilometers or 384 miles per hour in Jupiter's Great Red Spot. But the airspeeds resulting from explosions exist on an entirely different scale. The airspeed from a typical explosive like C4 travels at 26,500 feet per second, which works out to about 28,000 kilometers or 18,000 miles per hour. And air is not really meant to move that fast. You know how when you walk through water or even just run your hand through it, you get a little wave pushing ahead of it trying to get out of its way? Explosions do the exact same thing with air. It compresses it while pushing it out of the way of the shockwave until it's as dense as a brick and traveling about 180 times as fast as a Dodge Caravan. Hollywood has done a terrible job educating you on how explosions actually work. Most people don't think about this, but did you know that there's about 60 miles of air between us and space? And all the weight of all that air puts about 15 pounds a square inch on your body? We've been kind of used to it since we were born, but shockwaves are a different kind of animal. Shockwaves put an overpressure on your body which just means pressure above and beyond what you normally experience. About a half a pound of pressure per square inch can break a window. About one pound can nicely tussle your hair. Experiencing five pounds per square inch of overpressure can blow your ears or eyes out. Health tip. If you're fast enough and you can decide between one or the other, covering your eyes or ears with your hands can actually offer some protection by muting the overpressure. Good news for ears, they're the go-to. Bad news for eyes though, no one ever grabs their eyes during an explosion and no one in history has ever made the split decision to spontaneously protect one eye and one ear this way. Soldiers who fire artillery are taught to face away from the blast because a shockwave can actually travel into their mouths and cause their insides to puff up like a balloon. About 15 pounds per square inch and you can expect lung damage. A shockwave may have traveled down your windpipe and destroyed the tissues that make breathing possible. The best advice is to not hold your breath and to keep your mouth open during an explosion which shouldn't be too hard to follow because you'll probably be turning all the air in your lungs into screams anyways. Above 35 pounds, your organs and veins will start to rupture. It's at this point that you're not going to do a lot to protect yourself and it just gets worse from there. Dismemberment starts around 220 PSI. Does it hurt, you ask? No, 
It doesn't have time to hurt. Word has it, the best way to survive an explosion is to lay flat on the ground, face down with your arms tucked to your sides. Just point your ass at the explosion and hope for the best. You can expect the oxygen to be ripped away momentarily after the blast, and assuming you're still alive, stay where you are. Don't even move. There's a famous photo of a victim from the volcanic explosion of Vesuvius. Their skeleton lay prone on the ground with a large rock embedded in the earth where the head was supposed to be. Shrapnel and debris will be flying and falling from every direction, and you don't want to be catching a flying doorknob in the face after surviving an explosion. I would say don't move until the tinkling and clinkling of falling debris stops, but you'll probably be deaf for a while, so that's not practical. The techniques for identifying the mangled and disfigured were not great in 1769, as you can imagine. People were staggered by the concussion and sound. They couldn't believe what had just happened, and more than a few had been cartoonishly mushed into the ground by massive chunks of debris. Survivors who were far enough away to avoid the shrapnel could still suffer torn ligaments or broken bones from the shockwave. Worst case would be a concussion. Your skull is basically treated like a baby rattle, which never ends up well in these circumstances. Your chances are about as good as a coin flip between death and brain damage. Now let's think about the burning. When you rub your palms together, they heat up. Air is no different. When air molecules are forced to move with the explosive speed, they heat up to a point it can sear your airways and cook you from the inside out. When a bomb explodes, the casing is destroyed and bits are thrown violently. When these fragments strike buildings, concrete, masonry, glass, or even people, they fragment further, and so on, and so on, like that scene from Gravity. So what happens when the bomb's casing, as in this case, is a massive stone building? Let's take a simple artillery shell to illustrate. There's enough propellant in a single artillery shell to launch a several pound projectile for miles. And that's only a couple of pounds. This was a fifth of a million pounds of propellant. All buildings are built to support their own weight. We talked about that in our last episode. They carry a heavy load, and compressed by gravity, and held in place by the genius of their own design. The one thing you never think of, though, is how well would they hold up when the forces pushing on them were from the opposite direction? Pressure from the rapid expansion of powder into fire and gas pushed up in all directions, expanding as it goes towards the walls and ceiling. In a smaller explosion, like a natural gas explosion, the walls would blow outward and the roof would collapse in on itself. When you're talking about an explosion you can measure on the Richter scale, everything wants to move out of its way, breaking apart as necessary to do so. If you were far enough away to survive the blast and blast wave, and were fleet of foot and fairly observant, you could have possibly dodged the huge stones weighing hundreds of pounds and arcing through the sky, but not so much the smaller apple fist or pebble side pieces whizzing past as fast as gunfire. The largest stones were thrown in a radius of a kilometer or six-tenths of a mile around the explosion. One surviving witness wrote, The tower shivered in a thousand pieces and fell upon the city in a shower of stones. Doors of houses and shops and even the massive heavy city gates were blown open by a blizzard of glass and debris. The injuries from these kinds of projectiles were immense, especially when your natural reaction is to turn towards the sound that surprised you so, giving most of your sense organs and genitals an unprotected view. There's another thing about explosions you never think of. You know when you put a candle under a glass and all the air burns up and the flame suffocates? You lift the glass and the surrounding air rushes back in to fill the vacuum. Fire loves oxygen, eats it all up. Once it's done, if it eats enough in a given space, it basically creates a giant vacuum, as if you've taken a giant sphere of breathable air and teleported it somewhere else. And all that surrounding air is going to want to rush back in to refill that space, just like water. 
imagine just barely surviving an enormous explosion only to be riddled with debris as a tsunami of air rushes back over you carrying whatever glass and debris happened to be around. The explosion that day didn't just destroy the Bastion of San Nazaro. Before and after sketches showed a full sixth of the city had been erased and replaced with rubble. Those massive chunks of stone tore through houses, buildings, and even other churches. The damage was extensive. It turns out, church bells don't deflect stone either. 18 years earlier, Benjamin Franklin became the first person to use electricity to detonate an explosive, so he knew what he'd been talking about. And the story proves him out. After concluding his failed European safety tour, he returned to America, to his beloved pet squirrels and morning air baths, anxious to begin his work on the I Told You So Hall of Fame. And in case you missed it, air bathing is basically airing out all your junk for about an hour a day. Back to Brescia. Again, because of the lopsided contest between the durability of the human form versus the concussive force of a hundred tons of gunpowder exploding, an exact death toll was hard to come by. It's like we say, if the explosion is dramatic enough, it acts as a kind of magic eraser for evidence. The most commonly stated body count was as many as 3,000 people, with another 800 injured. Survivors would have wandered the streets and foundations of Russia like zombies, smacking their heads, trying to coax their hearing back. Some maybe missing a limb or an eye. Some maybe straight up porky pig in it with their clothes blown off. Think about how sore you are the day after a heavy workout. Now imagine that multiplied after being ragdolled through the air and peppered with debris like a paintball test dummy. The hardest part of researching a disaster more than 200 years old is the quality of records kept and extrapolating fact from fiction. Today's story required a lot of translation from old-timey Italian writings that captured a lot more character and detail of the disaster. No records were kept of the size of the crater left by the blast, but here's my cheap Mythbusters math on how it would have played out. 200,000 pounds of gunpowder is the equivalent of 1,000 tons, which is the equivalent of one kiloton of explosives. A half kiloton explosive tested in an explosives testing range in Nevada left a crater 40 feet deep and 72 feet across. That bomb was buried two feet under the ground, and the deeper an explosive is buried in the ground, the more hugged it is by the terrain. And with nowhere else to go, it forces all the power of the explosion upwards. According to the Kelly Kiloton Index, an adorably named guide to explosive sizes, the Brescia explosion would have registered as a 4.0 on the Richter scale. We'll never know for sure exactly how damaging the blast was without knowing the full depth of the basement, how the explosives were stored, the exact thickness and weight of the building above, and hundreds of other factors, but we can safely say a full kiloton blast from a deeper depth than 2 feet is going to make a mark bigger than 40 by 70. Could the people of Brescia have outrun the blast? What you believe may depend on how dumb TV and movies have made you. The following is a passage from tvtropes.org about surviving explosions. This time-honored action sequence has a few twists as well. There's the rocket jump, where an action hero uses the power of a blast to propel him to some sort of advantageous position. There's the Out of the Inferno, where our hero is engulfed in flames and smoke for a brief nail-biting moment before emerging essentially unharmed, and the badass normal, in which a tough guy simply walks away, calm, cool, and collected, perhaps lighting a cigarette as a car explodes in the background. According to the US Department of Homeland Security, quote, the minimum evacuation distance is the range at which a life-threatening injury from blast or fragmentation hazards is unlikely. The minimum safe distance from a 5-pound or 2.5-kilo pipe bomb is 1,200 feet or 360 meters. So no, you cannot outrun an explosion. Unless you're just looking for something to do with the last few seconds of your life. Speaking of dead people, let's get back to the priests. The title of Saint tells us four things. That the person lived a holy life, is in heaven, is to be honored, and that they probably died terribly. 
More often than not, early saints were euthanized for their faith in all sorts of creative ways. A little research on the deaths of various saints led to some notable discoveries. Saint Philomena was whipped, nearly drowned, shot full of arrows, then decapitated. Saint Euphemia was fed to lions, patched up, then fed to a bear. But the blue ribbon for sheer comedic value goes to Saint Eulalia, who was rolled down a hill in a barrel filled with knives. Sadly, the gentle souls that climbed the Tower of Saint Nazaro that terrible day in 1769 were never formally canonized by the church. They were shot from the church like a cannon, but that's about it. Following the explosion at Brescia, the Roman Catholic Church had a change of heart. They acknowledged the wisdom of the old idea that the Lord helps those who help themselves, and withdrew its religious objections to lightning rods. But still, even after all this, even after Benjamin Franklin himself actively advised governments across Europe about the benefit of lightning rods, especially around explosives, in spite of it all, he was still stonewalled and argued with at length about whether lightning rods should be pointy or have those decorative little balls at the end. The argument became political, and King George III of England decided he didn't want or need Franklin's advice, and in turn ordered British munition stores to use the non-pointy ones. Until one of those munition stores in Sumatra turned into a smoking crater during a thunderstorm. The Parliament of Paris finally enforced an edict in 1786 to ban ringing church bells in thunderstorms. It wouldn't be until the 1800s when lightning rods were finally adopted by the masses. During that time, a maritime journal recorded 15 major lightning-related gunpowder explosions. The memory of the tragedy long remained with the people of Brescia. There was a curious episode in 1883 where a large meteorite fell to earth, making an ungodly sound that freaked people out. They were immediately reminded of the explosion of San Nazaro more than a century earlier, because trauma is timeless. The nice thing is, after all of this, no one was ever killed by lightning-related explosions again. Okay, that's a lie. Three more Hail Marys, so be it. But we do hope you enjoyed our episode on God versus the Church of Europe. We've done episodes where technology, politics, and nature have created chaos and death, but today's episode is our first faith-based disaster. Our episode danced all around themes of skepticism and faith. On the one hand, sadly, there are not enough people open-minded enough to entertain a thought without having to accept it. People who would dismiss something entirely because it doesn't fit into their worldview. And on the other hand, faith consists in believing when it's beyond the power of reason to believe. It's a beautiful part of our human nature and one of humanity's greatest gifts. In this case though, it killed 3,000 people. I'd really like to see the stained glass frescoes depicting the two priests simultaneously blown up and electrocuted. Also, stop, drop, and roll in Latin is prohibere e stila vomine. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Doomsday Podcast, or fire us an email to doomsdaypod at gmail.com. Older episodes can be found wherever you found this one. And while you're there, please leave us a review and tell your friends. And tell your friends a five-star review helps like-minded history buffs discover the show. If you want to support the production of the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash funeralkazoo. If you're after cool episode-specific swag, you're welcome to visit evilreindeershop.com. But if you can spare the money and had to choose, we ask you to consider making a donation to Global Medic. Global Medic is a rapid response agency of Canadian volunteers offering assistance around the world to aid in the aftermath of disaster and crises. They're often the first and sometimes the only team to get critical interventions to people in life-threatening situations. And to date, they've helped 3.6 million people across 75 different countries. You can learn more and donate at globalmedic.ca. On the next episode, bring a shovel, we're going to the movies! It's the Knickerbocker Storm of 1922. We'll talk soon. Safety goggles off, and thanks for listening.
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Ballsy History. Tune in next week to hear a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.